You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. One of the areas that I think is problematic in design and in design thinking and design research is there's a lot of I, 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 me, me, me. What do you personally need? What do you as an individual want? What do you desire? And how can I help you to get those things? And I'm quite interested in asking what, what we need. You know, what does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to go beyond the individual? Hello, I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of MEX, and that was Dan Phillips asking some of the questions which, quite frankly, need to be asked and often are not asked if we want the research phases of human-centered design projects to reflect the needs and contribute more positively to something which feels like progress for big collective communities rather than just meeting the needs of individual consumers. Dan is Senior Research Fellow at the Royal College of Art, and where this conversation we had came from was a project that he led called Our Future Towns, which was all about collaborative placemaking, uh, you know, really trying to create a toolkit to help communities, particularly those in, in smaller towns, Imagine a future where advances in technology and in transport lead to better places and a better overall planet. Now, even though you're hearing it now, Dan and I actually recorded this conversation in the spring of 2021, but it it sort of feels like an appropriate time to be sharing it. With the COP26 climate conference happening in Glasgow with the sense of urgency about the degree to which we all need to rethink our relationship with the environment. So I'm going to tell you a bit more about Dan, but one thing I'd recommend before you listen further, go and take a look at the report which came out of this Our Future Towns project. I'll put a link in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com so you can easily surf across to it. Now, I can see a lot of reports, and there aren't really many I'd recommend spending too much time with, but this one is a bit different. It leads off with a poem. It contains books, which Dan describes as a sort of collaborative gift, which he and his team made with the citizens of these three towns in very different parts of the UK, reflecting their hopes and their fears for an imagined future in which communications technology and the the coming generation of new vehicles are all in service of their needs and the planet's needs. So Dan himself started his career as a sponsored undergraduate working with Ford Motor Company in the UK and in Germany. He's worked for huge engineering concerns like Arup and Bureau Happold. He wrote a book Eco-Friendly Homes, which is all about 30,000 copies. He's worked with big telecom companies like Orange. In many ways, it's a journey which is defined by its richness and its diversity. You know, it's, and that's something we talk about in our discussion uh, about Dan's respect for the power of the generalist, for integrated thinking, uh, and this note of caution that he sounds over becoming too tied to a particular specialism and seeing that as the answer to all problems. The project itself caught my attention for a couple of reasons. So firstly, those poems. The fact that this was a project which sought to use art and was conducted under the auspices of the Royal College of Art to provoke people to think differently about problems which traditionally have been the purview of architecture, engineering, transport planning. The second thing was the the subtlety of the research approach, and we spend quite a bit of the conversation talking about that because, well, I mean, there was quite a lot that I just wanted to learn here 
about the ways that they worked with communities to listen, to engage them about feelings and beliefs, and use those to inform the creation of collaborative visions for the future, which just feel a lot more real, a lot more grounded than those which tend to result from the way a lot of companies, particularly in the tech industry, still approach their user research. So anyway, here it is, my conversation with Dan Phillips, Senior Research Fellow at the Royal College of Art. Hope you enjoy. When you think about the place that you you call home, has your relationship with that changed in this strange old year that we've all been living through for the last 12 months? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I moved to this part of London because I wanted to be close to the Heath, which is a beautiful piece of green space near to the centre of London. And I wanted to be close to the centre of town. And I wanted to be close to work so that I could cycle to work. And I wanted to be close to friends. So all of those things are still there waiting. Um, but I've probably become more, obviously, more um, connected to the Heath because it's the one thing that's still close by that you're allowed to go to. So that sort of connection to a piece of green space has changed and and deepened. And it's deepened in some ways, but then I've lost something as well, because one of the things I love doing is I go um, swimming outdoors every day, come rain or shine, and the pond is currently closed. uh, So I haven't been able to swim through the winter, which is what I normally do. That's pretty brave. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's it's some, it's just practice. It's like everything in life, you know. You start off thinking it's a s- silly thing to do, and then it becomes a, a habit, and then it becomes a joy, and then it becomes something that you just make part of your life. And actually, the only time I've been in a pond over the last three months is my wife bought a little uh, puppy last year, and she decided the puppy decided to go um, ice skating on one of the ponds when we had the frost and um, she clambered out across the ice and then where, where there was a hole, she obviously thought she'd have a drink and then she fell in. So I had to go and uh, break the ice to go and get her. A rescue mission. It's lucky you'd had all that training of uh, winter swimming to harden you to the conditions. Yeah. And you know what? It didn't feel cold. It was surprising. So that's it. Unbeknownst to you, you'd just been in training all those years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Waiting for... A dog to jump in, yeah, jump after, yeah. So, um, so there's that. But obviously, you know, the thing that London, you know, gives people apart from the convenience of being close to many things is, you know, this really rich culture and the opportunities to be part of something that's very vibrant and so many different people and ideas coming together, and that has not been replaced by technology we try to watch things online or get involved in zoom meetings with friends or whatever and they just pale in significance to the physical world and i think that's that's something that i hope many people have realized and it's something that i think is one of my concerns with people special specializing in certain fields and thinking that that particular hammer they've got is the answer to all of the problems in the world when actually, you know, they're quite often not. Yeah, I mean, I think for all of the misfortune that this year that we've all lived through has brought, it, it has been interesting. That there's been this kind of shared experience in our relationship with place and that changing or at least manifesting in different ways. But I think you're right about that the consistency there of almost everyone has found that access to outdoor space of some kind has their interest in it has, has deepened or has, has changed in some way as a result of, of what's happened. Um, but it, it does make me wonder about these three particular places that you looked at for the report that you were involved with and how you chose those in the first place. So this Our Future Towns uh, project that you're referencing came out of a conversation with a group of planners and transport planners Um, and particularly this lady, Linda Addison, who was the chair of the Transport Planning Society. And she wanted to come up with some form of communication that would change people's hearts and minds when they think about the future. 
you know, she's particularly concerned about issues around climate change, as am I. But I think there's there's a whole issue around changing our relationship to the world that we live in and being more connected to the world that we live in. And so we talked initially, she wanted to think, you know, there was a discussion about, shall we make a film or shall we make an animation? Um, and I just didn't feel like a film or an animation would necessarily have the impact that uh, we could possibly have as designers. So we discussed the idea of working with communities to understand what the community's needs really were and maybe reflect back with them on how those needs could inform like a future conversation about a place. And why these three places in particular? So we decided we weren't going to focus on cities because there are lots of people working in city environments. So we thought we would look at smaller towns, which tend to be ignored and actually have much bigger transport problems than cities have because everybody is so dependent on on their car. And small towns are also, you know, losing a lot of their infrastructure, whether it's cultural, whether it's social, whether it's economic infrastructure, because it's all being put online and they don't have the resources to sort of come up with alternatives. So we basically connected with an organisation called the National Association of Local Councils and we created a call to action. So we asked, we sent out a call through this association for any community leader who was interested in thinking about community well-being and thinking about the future of their towns. We sent it out and we, we got 20 different communities coming back to us. And then we did a sort of a very rough cut, you know, scoring people on ambition, on interest in sustainability, on their geographic location, on various things. And it turned out that Hortwhistle in, in the north, Biggleswade in the Midlands and Lyme Regis in the South sort of provided us with a range of places to talk to and with people who were interested in investigating how they could engage with the future. So that's where that's where the three towns come. It, it, it's not not rocket science, but it was a way of engaging with different places. And did you have a personal relationship with any of those places yourself before going into this? Nothing. No, not at all. Interesting. So you're starting from from scratch. Yeah. With the, the way the, the report from this is structured, I found quite interesting that you have these different sort of sections or stages of the work that you report on, the first of which seems to have been, I guess, what you'd broadly call the listening stage, you know, as, as one might expect by something which is intended to reflect people's experience and, and involve all these, these different stakeholders. But I'm curious, you know, although that's quite a, a well-known path, if you like, to go down with creating something like this, I guess everyone's interpretation of what to really listen to stakeholders means can be quite different. You know, how was it for you with this particular report? What did it mean to listen to those communities in those different places? Yeah, well, I, I think this this comes to the, the heart of uh, problem that listening all depends on who you ask, how you ask, and what you ask. And all of those things are important to listening, as well as sort of the way in which you frame the whole idea. So what we were trying to do is engage with people's philosophies and emotions, as well as some of their knowledge about their towns, about themselves, about their community, about how they get around, about their beliefs in the future. And we were, we were trying to sort of just understand the heartbeat of a community rather than the sort of noise that you often get when people talk about the local plan or the neighbourhood plan. It all becomes like a, an argument about, um, you know, I don't like those people. I, I, you know, I need this. I want this. I don't like that. And it didn't seem to us to be a very useful way to talk about the future or, or to even engage with people to think about the future. So we wanted to ask questions like, you know, what makes you smile? What made you optimistic during lockdown? What made you pessimistic during lockdown? What are your special skills that you could give to your community? What in your community is holding you back or holding your community back? And 
it's that sort of range of questions that provided quite a rich set of responses. Now, in reality, you know, we did it during the middle of lockdown last summer. So it wasn't really the ideal time to really deeply engage with people because we could have set up a market stall and we could have spent time in schools uh, with school children and we could have spent time in, you know, different places to listen to different people's perspectives. And we had to rely a bit on technology, which I think was slightly problematic. But one of the things that I think we find in a lot of design work is that it's good to give people time to think at their own pace and respond in their own way. So often when, when, when we run discovery workshops, you know, we, we say to people, write down your thoughts, you know, make a few notes before sharing them. So we, we, we were just trying to extend that, um, that metaphor into, you know, the community and to reach as, as many people as we could in a relatively short period of time. And don't forget, we were really doing this as a prototype and as a provocation. We weren't trying to formally help a town create a vision for the future in three months because it, it wasn't enough time. How do you think doing something like this under the auspices of an organisation like the RCA, the Royal College of Art, influences you know the way in which you go about it and the way in which people engage with it because i mean i suppose quite a few of the things that you have been exploring here or that work like this might go on to influence you know might be more readily associated with transport or the built environment you know things which um, possibly wouldn't immediately spring to mind when you think of an organization like the RCA, although I can see the, the clear link there, and particularly in, in the way in which you describe its relationships to people's personal philosophies and, and emotions. But you know, I'm, I'm curious how that sort of manifested, you know, both in the way you thought about how you're going to plan that discovery work and in the way that the participants that you had from the three towns responded to it. I think it does help to have the RCA as a label or as a, as a sort of holder for a conversation. Because we, we, we're not going in with a, an agenda that is about the solution or is about a particular component of a community. And that's the great thing about art as a word is it can, it can be about anything and it can ga- engage many people. I think the communities we're working with are not people who knew what the Royal, Royal College of Art was. So whilst it was nice, it wasn't like oh, I must get involved because it's the Royal College of Art. We couldn't capture everyone involved in the community. Um, In fact, there are a lot of people who are still disinterested. So there are pros and cons. Um, Does that answer what you're looking to understand? It does. You know, I think I'm just overall quite intrigued by particularly that that first stage of the work because it it seems so formative to obviously what you were then able to go and do with what you learnt from that listening phase and clearly there was going to be a lot of that which flowed directly from the quality of how people engaged with it but I did also I guess have my attention kind of captured by just things like the language of the books that you made to share back what you'd learnt in that listening stage with the, the community. If I may, I'll, I'll read you a brief quote from it because I'm, I'm intrigued to get your view on it and sort of where that came from. So this was the one that you made for the community in Lyme Regis. And it, it comes from an interesting perspective because you say, we work for the community as healthcare workers, teachers, and sustainable thinkers. We moved for the scenery, for the great coastal views. We grew up here and discovered that we loved the outdoors and the nature on our doorstep. So what comes across very strongly to me, you know, someone who has myself been involved in doing various user research projects over the years, that this is not coming across as a booklet which has been, by, been written by you, you know, Dan, the, the researcher, this is very clearly a document which is intended to come across as being written by the community itself uh, and is all about the community itself. And I'd be very interested to know like where that decision came from to write in that tone, to write from that perspective when you came to share back the results of that listening stage to the community. 
Well, it, ca- it came from, you know, the, the original sort of call to action, which was ask people to imagine our future together. So it came from really the framing of the whole project was we want to understand what a people as a community might be. And one of the areas that I think is problematic in design and in design thinking and design research is there's a lot of I, 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 me, me, me. What do you personally need? What do you as an individual want? What do you desire? And how can I help you to get those things? And I'm quite interested in asking what what we need. You know, what does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to go beyond the individual? And so the language that we're using is really just, just a reflection of that desire to think of people as communities rather than people as individuals. And I guess, you know, there's a big social conversation around that because we have become much more individualistic. And I wonder whether we've become more individualistic because of the role of designers and politicians and organisations thinking about individuals as consumers rather than as members of a community. Did that come naturally to the team to think in that way? Or was that something as someone tasked with leading this work, you had to reinforce or ensure remained a consistent thread in the work? I, I wouldn't take too many credits myself, but I did need to insist that we thought about people as part of a community and, you know, make sure that the language and the way we thought about the project tried to sort of build an us and a community philosophy rather than an individualistic one. I mean, it partly comes back to this whole, I don't know if you've looked at any work around citizens' assemblies where you get 50 people together coming from all the sort of diverse viewpoints of a community. And when you get them together to talk about problem, you can either think of that group of people as a bunch of individuals or you can think of them as a collective an empowered assembly, which is going to have to go through a a process of reciprocation and a process of dialogue to come up with a shared solution. And it's partly to do with that dialogue and that reciprocity that we wanted to approach the project. You know, I think that's really important because we've got to, you know, you look at the social media world and you look at the sort of warfare that's going on between different groups and there's no clear reason why people should behave like that because it's not going to lead to the best outcome. Now with these books that were published and when you then shared them back to the the communities to summarise the findings from that listen stage, where did that sit in the overall arc of this project? You know what was that leading on to? Why did you go to the the effort of creating these really rather lovely booklets of summarising the, the listening stage. What was the intent with where that would go next? So originally I wanted to call these a gift. You know, we, this is a gift back to you. You've shared things with us, so here's a gift back to you. It's a reflection of what uh, you as a community have thought about. And in that gift, it was an opportunity for people in the community to read about their community in a different way in a a way that they might not read about normally. And within that gift, we had a map of all the things that make people smile in a community and another map of all the things that make people frown. And then we also created a, um, a utopia based on all of the aspirations and positive perspectives that people had on the future and a dystopia, which was a sort of reflection of all of the problems and worries and concerns that people had in a community and what we hoped and what we you know we still feel and don't forget as I keep on I have to keep on insisting this was really just a provocation we didn't have a remit to go as deeply into the communities as we would like because we had a very short period of time we were spread we had a tiny team which I can go into you know I had one service designer one architect two uh, mobility designers and myself over three months working with these three different communities. And we wanted to sort of bootstrap a provocation or a a proposal 
out of our time with these different communities. But the, the aim was that that gift became a sort of starting point for thinking about the future, not from my personal perspectives, but from the perspectives of the community. And we got some very positive feedback from it. And all of the communities we're working with wanted to continue, you know, wanted to go deeper. But that was the idea. It was to create a gift and to get people to reflect on what their town meant to them as a collective. And hopefully it would start to change people's hearts and minds. And it would start people thinking, oh, this is interesting. You know, this, this, is, this could be, wouldn't this be great if we did more of the utopia and more of the things that make us smile and less of the dystopia and less of the things that make us grumble? How are we going to do that? So that was that sort of first step. And, and the reflections on it is also like, how could you make this a sort of dynamic process? How could this sort of idea of listening and reflecting back this community voice move away from being something that a community does in a point of time, but does constantly? And as new people join a community or leave, you know, maybe that voice changes or maybe it's a good way of sort of getting to know where you're moving to. Or even, you know, that underneath it, there could be like a social network or there could be a, a set of organizations. I think the whole problem with like policy making and the technocratic approach to local plans is that it, it's not about the community. It's about a process. So we were thinking, you know, how could this be a living thing? Does that make sense? It does. And it's an interesting result from it. And it makes me wonder how that felt for you, because I know you have experience in quite a few areas, which some of these outcomes, I suppose, might naturally lead towards, you know, in terms of working in the built environment, working in the technology industry, working in several areas adjacent to this. So I find it quite interesting to sort of hear your perspective on when you've gone through a rather different sort of uh, a set of actions around this, provocations around this, where you most naturally felt the outcomes that emerged from the community would flow into if you were going to take this forward to the next step and say, well, this is what we heard from these communities about you know, how they want their places to be in the future. Um, putting on the, the kind of the lenses that you have from that previous experience, where you felt or what changes you, you felt would make most sense in those areas, which would be the kind of enablers of making those those changes happen, where those would most naturally land. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's another, you know, that goes back to the comment about, you know, we, I don't know if I made it in this or in a previous conversation, but, you know, there, there are lots of people in design or in uh, the world with a speciality and they all think that, you know, their speciality, their hammer is, is the answer to this systemic challenge. Um, you know, if only we could increase broadband, the world would be a better place. If only we could have autonomous cars, the world would be a better place. If only people could go and work in a community center, the world would be a better place. And my sort of approach to, actually, it, go, it goes back a long way. I used to be, I mean, I was an engineer. I'm, I am an engineer. I was trained as an engineer. And I, one of the things that frustrated me is the idea that technology is the solution. And there's that classic line, you know, technology is the solution, but what's the question? And I think that the big solution is changing the place, changing the people, changing the technology, changing the environment, you know, changing everything together in a systemic way. So I think we need to have much more of a systemic approach. And our big problem in society is we have a lot of silos so we have specialists in healthcare, or we have specialists in education, or we have specialists in transportation, or we have specialists in the built environment. And they're all beating their own particular drum, but they're not sort of thinking about how could you synthesize all of these things together? So my answer to the question is, what are the enablers? I think it's got to be, how do you create that 
synthesis in a community. The best thing is it revolves around the people in the community rather than being an external force that says the answer is a new byway or highway or bypass or bus service. Yeah, I guess that's the the beautiful potential of a piece of work that operates at a level like this, I guess at that level of emotions and philosophy that you described and across a whole range of different areas of life, because I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this kind of work can and is done by, you know, car companies, transport providers, town planners, but it's rare, I think, that there is something which tries to join it up at that deeper level of engagement with what it really means across a whole range of life's areas and, and challenges for the people themselves. Yeah, and actually one of the interesting things that came out of the sort of listening phase was when you ask people what they worried about when they thought about the future, 80% worried about the economy, 80% worried about the environment, 80%, you know, this is rough, worried about social issues like inclusion or health. And But there were less people worried about political differences and technology. I think that, you know, politicians like the idea that politics is going to, you know, everybody's going to join their club or politics is going to be the solution through I don't know, the ballot box. But actually, I think most people in most communities really want their community to thrive and they want to deal with the problems that they face together. And that came through in, in all of the research that they really thought that the answers would become come out of the community and not come out of one particular political party or one particular uh, technology. Can you tell me a little bit about the poetry? Because I think, when I think back to my personal relationship to this work, that was probably what caught my attention first about this and created that little hook of interest, which made me think, hmm, this looks a little bit different. This is probably something that, having seen probably a number of things you know, over the last year or so, which touch on different areas of this, that I may not have given as much attention to. That was the thing which hooked my attention and thought, what is what role is poetry playing in something which you could put the lens of transport or future technologies or, or planning around? And yet here we have poetry being used as a, a tool within it. And I must admit that was probably the thing which got me to to, to click through and, and read more about it in the first place. So I'm intrigued by where that came from? Well, I've, I've, I've always liked um, a little bit of poetry. I'm, I'm not an expert in poetry at all. So, um, you know, I, I don't expect me to list off my 20 favourite poets or anything like that. But there was a line that I had in my head uh, and I actually wanted to, I wanted to get this, uh, the poet laureate, Simon Armitage, to, to write a poem for this project. And the line that was in my head is, we, we don't make postcards of our towns anymore. And I know that's, that's not a poem because it's only one line, but it is this sort of idea that words and poetry can sort of point to things that make us think more deeply about an issue. So we don't make postcards of our towns anymore. Anyway, I ended up putting Simon Armitage's poem that he wrote I think with some support from British Telecom last year in response to everybody being locked down. And I've used poems in previous projects. So I think I mentioned to you earlier about this project we did on uh, driverless futures. And um, there was a poem. Well, the driverless futures project also had utopias and dystopias in it. And we had this exhibition at the, London Transport Museum when we were trying to engage more people in what's a driverless future. And I used a poem by a writer called Richard Brautigan. And I think probably everybody knows the, uh, well, lots of people might know the 
the title of the poem is All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. And the poem goes something like, I like to think it has to be a cybernetic ecology where man is freed of all his labours, returned to his mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. And I just think there's something really interesting in a, a poem like that, that points to both the sort of utopian and dystopian future. The fact that being watched over by machines is like Big Brother, but machines of loving grace, you know, what a loving grace operating system look like. And I did actually do some research around around that. And um, apparently there was a, a loving grace operating system set up by some company in the 70s in California. I think that, you know, there's just something interesting about poems in bringing ideas to life in different ways. And the fact that it piqued your in- interest is obviously a proof that it's it's valuable thing to add to a project. For sure. I think if you can engage people in that way, it opens up a range of outcomes from work like this, which simply might not be possible otherwise. And of course, that's not necessarily something which is always desirable when you're going through a process of user research and co-creation with the people that you're you're working with. Sometimes you're, I guess you're after some quite specific outcomes there where maybe you want people to respond directly to some quite specific changes in a product or in a service that they're being offered. But I think when you're trying to do something which is imagining things which by definition perhaps don't yet exist, then unless you can engage in that different way, it's going to be quite hard to access those. So it strikes me as quite an interesting I hate to use the term really in relation to something like poetry, but in a way it is a a tool in the toolbox which opens up some possibilities that you might not otherwise be able to tap into. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's so much reliance on quantity, isn't there? Quantitative analysis. And, you know, we surveyed 500 people and 25% said X and 73% said Y, and therefore we're going to do Y. But there might have been something really interesting in the 25% of people who said X, and we've lost it because we've done it all through quantitative analysis. From inclusive design, we always think that the, you know, the possibilities often happen at the edges, not in the middle. The the new ideas and the opportunities, as well as the complex challenges, happen at the edge where people are excluded or where people bring in new perspectives. And the people in the middle, you know, the bullseye, the target market, are just telling you things you knew already. So what's what's the point of even surveying them? So it's partly to do with that. And interestingly, a lot of the problems with planning and design and marketing is that it's it's all about having a technical response to a problem. And the reason why we've now we've got all these machines that are out there telling us what the future is going to be, because they've got this incredible bit of AI that's going to sort of do some pattern recognition and is going to be able to provide a, an answer to the future. And in in transport planning, that's called predict and provide. So based on previous results based on our surveys we predict that in 10 years time we're going to need a new motorway and we're going to need 25 more parking spaces here and we're going to need this and we're going to need that and it's apparently all come out of this wonderful piece of quantitative analysis and complex algorithms but is predict and provide the best way of developing a vision for the future i think that's a pretty big question my personal feeling with something like this is that particularly once you get even a relatively short distance forward into the future from where we are now, then relying on those kind of data from the near past is rarely going to be an accurate guide to the sort of possibilities that are going to really excite and improve people's lives in a deep way off into the the future. It's not to say that they don't have a role Certainly, if you're looking to do something which is going to address you know, some of the, the bigger, deeper systemic problems that exist in communities, then there's a real power and potential, as you say, at those, those edges and in taking 
an approach which is different from, by definition, the approaches which have been part of where we've got to and where these sort of problems and blind spots have emerged from in the first place. That's just my personal feel about it, but it, it sounds as if perhaps some of the methods that you are using here do relate to that theme. Yeah, I hope so. There's lots always work to be done in terms of sort of refining how we develop the future. Um, but I'm pretty sure that predict and provide is not a good solution. And I also think that the whole creative destruction and winner takes all sort of approach that comes out of sort of market-based philosophies is also highly problematic. So either way, we're going to have to come up with a better approach and this, this might help. We'll see. You know, we, we've, we've had lots of very good conversations, but we haven't yet persuaded government ministers to invest or to experiment in alternative approaches. And I think that's yeah. one of the things that we need. We need more of this sort of experimentation rather than betting on one thing. I was going to ask about that. And, you know, what haven't you had a chance to do yet with this? Are there things still left on the to-do list which lead directly on from the work that was done on this project? Yeah, everything that we've put into the into the proposal has yet to be uh, developed and properly tested with communities so that they can prove that creating a vision together using these tools and approaches leads to a more resilient, restorative, creative future for a community. So we haven't done that. We haven't built a platform that anybody could engage with so that, you know, wherever you were in the UK or even abroad, you could use a, a set of tools. Here they are, you know, make your own version of it. Go to GitHub and make your own copy for your town and run it on your own without help of designers from the RCA, but, you know, do it yourself. And then there's a whole sort of capacity and capability building. You know, if this approach really did work with four towns, and we built tools that any community could use, what would be like the way to build a learning community around this approach so that it doesn't just sort of disappear into yet another toolbox? And how many toolboxes are there out there that sit on a shelf effectively because they're not utilized effectively and they haven't built a community of use around them? And that, that's a very big challenge. What would the GitHub for building future communities be and why doesn't it exist why have we got a platform for helping developers to sort of open source code but we haven't got a platform to help communities develop their futures together possibly almost you know, two problems which go hand in hand there as you say there's the the challenge around can you get a set of tools and platform like that out there in the public domain and encourage people to use them but then having the proof points, having the stories which inspire people about how they've been used and how that led to tangible change in those communities is going to be the very thing which spurs their their further usage. I mean, when you think about the sort of the near-term possibilities for this, and if you were going to put another three months into continuing this work or another six months into continuing this work, what's your gut feel as to where you would focus that attention first if you're going to try to make progress in those areas? What we're trying to do at the moment is get a community of interested parties to fund that next step. And for us, it is like we've got three communities who've already said that they want to, they do want to develop a vision and they do want to test these tools. So could we work with them? You know, we've had other places around the UK who've expressed interest as well so should we be doing more place you know working with more places does that help or is it better for us to focus on one place and put all of our effort into one situation and um, I think from a uh, sort of design perspective I think working with one place would be easier um, but from a sort of having an impact and maybe building more momentum I think working with more places would be more valuable. But we've had lots, we've had conversations with uh, Department for Transport, with the Ministry for Housing. We've had conversations with a lot of the stakeholders, people like Living Streets, Sustrans, 
and then we've we've had some meetings with some overseas engineers and developers who are interested and i think it it's it's one of those things we don't particularly want to build a new business so we don't really want to treat this as a startup uh which would take us down a particular route but we're conscious that a lot of sort of that growth could come from being a startup or at least being a sort of social enterprise rather than being an academic uh, institution. So we might have to go down a bit more of the social entrepreneur route if we can't get the funding another way. Well, it's an engaging and provocative piece of work. And I hope whatever path you end up going down with it in the future, you know, it continues in some way, because I think there's a great contribution that it can make. There was one final thing that I wanted to ask you about, Dan, and I guess it's perhaps a little bit of a reflection on your own career journey and that having had the opportunity now to work in quite a few different industries over the years and more recently working on projects like this, which take that systemic approach spanning a range of different life's areas. I'm just wondering... You know, where you see your future efforts best invested and if you could describe the overall goal that you feel you're working towards through those different channels that you've engaged with over the years you know where does this sit in that sort of goal towards by the time you come to retirement what, what you hope to have contributed to the world I think the big opportunities for uh, society and you know, something that I'm very interested in doing uh, and contributing towards is uh, a real um, merging of thinking and skills and approaches around well-being and uh, and sustainability from an environmental perspective, um, and how tools and technologies need to enable those things that if they don't enable well-being and sustainability then they're not at all they're not a technology they're snake oil they're just a waste of time and effort and the more that we as people working collaboratively recognize that we need to have this dual focus on well-being and environmental resilience and restoration um, and the more that we can put our efforts into those things, the better sort of outcome we will have. And when I talk about well-being, I am thinking about community well-being, not individuals being, you know, the best. And that's that's another trouble, you know, that we've got so much effort of being focused on individuals. So I think this point of how do we help communities to think about community well-being community sustainability rather than think about my individual success or my even my company's individual success there's lots of a lot of the conversations we have with the communities we've worked with is all about like how can we do this how can we be more collaborative how can we be rather than thinking that it's my town or your town and one succeeds and the other fails how can we help each other to develop together and that was one of one of the projects we worked on was you know thinking about social cohesion and the idea of togetherness as such an important part of social cohesion and such an important part of the future well and i guess never more so than now after we all in various ways have lived through a period of time when togetherness at least in the physical sense has been a difficult thing to do but i i fully agree with your sentiments around that need for the sort of integrated thinking and the, the collaborative approach to solving these problems in the future. And I think projects like this make a wonderful contribution to that. So yeah, thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to share a bit of the story with uh, the MEX community. It's much appreciated. Yeah, very kind of you to, to ask me, Marek. And um, that would be interesting to hear from anybody who's listening. And, you know, they can uh, look up our Future Towns RCA and download the report and hopefully get in touch or use some of the findings.
Absolutely. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes so that you can check all of that out and details to get in touch with Dan and his team to continue the conversation. Great. Thank you very much, Marek. So how did you find that? Quite apart from the pleasure of chatting with someone with Dan's breadth of experience, I think I'm taking away a couple of things personally that are going to be noodling around at the back of my head as I'm walking the dog and thinking about the future and working away on all the things which are keeping me busy at the moment in the world of experience-led design. The main one is that sense of overriding priority we must assign to considering impact. What are the questions you and your team are asking about the impact your work is going to have on communities, on the environment? I'm guessing that list might look slightly different for each team, but seriously, do you have a list? And if you do, how often are you reviewing and updating the questions which are on it? And the other really powerful thing which is going to stick with me is how we must remind ourselves constantly to embrace the wonderful, raw, sometimes uncomfortable discoveries that lie at the edge of design research. Truly, that, I think, is where the magic happens, as Dan alluded. You know, we already kind of know what's being said in the middle, so let's go off and search out something unexpected. I'll be back soon, sooner, I hope, than I've been managing of late with another episode. But for now, don't forget to check out the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com, where you'll find links to everything that Dan and I talked about, including the report itself. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.